discord and disunity among the believers. James identified the source of that disunity to be in the quarrelsome behaviors among the people as they sought in the flesh to achieve status and authority and leadership over one another and chose it in ungodly means. Their lives were characterized by a prayerlessness in their approach to leadership among the people of God. This morning we continue. I've entitled this Worldly Churches Part 2. I thought I'd choose an original title, Part 2, because this is the solution really to the problem that James outlined last week for us. This is probably one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It's hard to find a lot of comfort here in this passage. There is some. But this is rough stuff. This is a stern passage, a strongly worded passage, dealing with the issue of repentance. Throughout Verses 4 through 10 that we'll be looking at together this morning. James reaches back into the Old Testament. And he brings forward Old Testament citations and allusions in order to make his point. And it's a strong point that he makes. He's calling the believers back from their flirtation with the world. Now, nobody likes to be spanked to be sure. In fact, as a child, I can remember my father saying, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I always used to think, well, then why don't you save us both some pain (laughs) and let's just call it quits. It's funny how we, uh, when we raise our own children, we tend to reach back into our childhood and pull forward those expressions. I said the same thing to my children. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Nobody likes to be spanked. But James spanks us this morning in this passage. I was thinking about the whole issue of spanking this morning. I don't know why, but I was. And in Proverbs chapter 20, you don't have to turn there. You can just let me read it for you. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 30, Solomon writes, Stripes that wound scour away evil, and strokes reach the innermost parts. Maybe he said another way, spanking cleanses the heart. It reaches down deep inside and it kind of cleanses the heart. And that's what James wants to do for us this morning. He wants to cleanse our hearts. And so we need to go to the woodshed together this morning. Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A trip to the woodshed this morning. 
To be directly and sharply confronted by God is a good thing. It cleanses the heart. It lances the wound. It it airs things out for all of us. It's much more fun to preach an uplifting message. That's one of the advantages, I suppose, of expository preaching, going through chapter by chapter, book by book, and that is you don't get to avoid the passages that you'd like to avoid. They come looking for you, and we have such a passage before us this morning. May God grant us the grace to humble our hearts, to open our ears, to listen, to hear, to receive, and to believe what James has written for our benefit. Let me pray. Our Father, we approach this text this morning and we do ask your Holy Spirit to apply it where it's needful in every single one of our lives. O Lord, may you not allow us to evade or avoid the truth that is before us this morning, the implications of which are very serious. Father, give your people ears to hear today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read for you James chapter 4. We'll pick it up beginning in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself. In the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. In verses 4 to 10, which is the text before us this morning, God provides for us a three part solution to the sin of worldliness. A three part solution to the sin of worldliness so that we might ruthlessly attack it wherever we find it in our own lives. 
three-part solution. And it begins in verse 4 with the fact that we must recognize our predicament. It begins by recognizing the predicament of worldliness to begin with. Notice James begins by saying, you adulteresses. That is not a friendly way to address a crowd. They don't advocate that when they teach you how to preach, to stand up and to begin to address people in that fashion. It's, it's just you're supposed to connect with your audience, build a rapport, have some empathy between you and, and the audience, and then begin to talk. And throughout this letter, James has been calling them brethren. Back all the way to chapter 1 and verse 2. Just, let's just review this a little bit. Back chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren. My brethren. James is including himself in writing here to the believers. The use of the term brethren identifies them as believers. He's writing to them that way. Verse 16, he says, chapter 1, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You're not just my brothers and sisters. I love you, my brothers and sisters. Verse 19, again, know this, my beloved brethren. Chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren, again. Verse 14, What use is it, my brethren? Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. You adulteresses, he says. That's shocking. To go from my brothers, my sisters, my beloved brothers, my sisters, you adulteresses. Your head ought to snap up when you hear that. Your eyes ought to come wide open when you hear that. Why would he go from speaking to them in such familial terms to confronting them with such shocking language? Maybe the church is having problems with sexual sin. Maybe he's trying to address that topic with them, the topic of adultery in the congregation. The problem with that is that there's nowhere else that it's mentioned, so he would be merely calling them that name and then never really speaking to them about how to deal with it. The context doesn't, doesn't really lend itself to think that he's talking about a sexual problem. Beyond the, which he uses the feminine form, adulteresses. That would kind of leave all the men out. So it's not likely at all that he's talking about that contextually. In fact, what he's doing here, I believe, is reaching back into the Old Testament and to pull that forward. For the Old Testament believer, he had a marriage relationship with Yahweh, right? Yahweh was his husband. He took Israel to himself. He married her. And her spiritual infidelity was likened unto adultery. 
over and over again throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The prophets rail forth against Israel and accuse her of adultery, spiritual adultery. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, God says, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. I think that's exactly what he's talking about here. In light of the New Testament relationship of the church as the bride of Christ, Betrothed to Christ, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. It's very, very understandable that their friendship with the world, again, James 4, 4, is the equivalent of spiritual adultery. And so speaking to the bride here, he says they are guilty of an enormous sin, an enormous sin. Do you not know, verse 4, this is not new information. James expects an affirmative answer here. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? You know these things. You know there is no middle ground. You know that this is a a basic reality of Christian discipleship. To be for me is to be separate from the world. To be part of the world is to be against me. No gray areas, no middle ground. You're like a, a man with one foot in the rowboat and the other on the pier. You better make a decision and you better make it quick. Are you in the boat or not? Do you not know? Do you not know? Beloved, Christ is speaking to us. He's saying, You call me Lord, Lord, and you do not what I say. You say you trust me with your eternal destiny. You believe I died in your place as a substitute for your sin. And yet, you're making friends with the world? What is going on? To pursue that that approach is to be guilty of adultery, hostility to God. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Notice, by the way, that James doesn't say that friendship with the world leads to hostility with God. You see that? Take a good look at that verse. He says friendship with the world is hostility toward God. It's not, the, it's not getting on the 
on the rail, on the track that's going to lead you to hostility, the very act is of itself a declaration of war on God. Why? Why is that so? The answer lies in the word friendship. Friendship, verse 4. Not Facebook friendships. Facebook friendships. You know, I've got 1,000 friends on Facebook. Really? Really? We've lost our understanding of friendship. Friendship, the ancient world, has to do with the idea of a kindly regard and affection for someone. A love relationship. Context here, friendship with the world implies conformity to the world's principles, its aims. It speaks of a love for the things of the world. Last week, we defined worldliness for you. We said worldliness is fundamentally adopting the the values and interests of the world, which is in rebellion against God and making them our own. That's what worldliness is. Adopting the world's values, the world's interests as our own. A world that is in rebellion against its creator. The logical result of adopting that kind of relationship to the world is to constitute you an enemy of God. To be a friend of that which is in rebellion of God makes you an enemy of God. Therefore, end of the verse... Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's a decision that we make. We make ourselves an enemy of God. Can I say this to you? God tolerates no rivals. Let me say it again. God tolerates no no rivals. You have to make only a cursory reading of the history of the nation of Israel to see that played out in living color. He redeemed his ancient people. He preceded them into the promised land. He delivered it into their hands. And yet... Their growing attraction to the things of this world constituted them enemies of God. To the place where he destroyed them, where he evicted them from their land with horrible consequences. If you're involved in the church's Bible reading program, this morning's reading was Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. One cannot read through Deuteronomy chapter 28 without being struck by how horrible a consequence 
God said would come upon His people when they turned from Him. To the place where they were practicing cannibalism. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, do you not think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit he's made to dwell in us. My friends, God is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. He will sanction no rivals. Flirtation bothers him. In fact, it angers him. He demands total, unreserved, unwavering allegiance from his people. A people, by the way, that he has rescued from sin and called to himself. A people that deserve judgment eternally in hell and by his mercy and grace have been redeemed by the blood of his own son. He's not kidding around. He has joined us to him. It was read for us earlier in the service in Ephesians chapter 1. Redeemed by the Son, sealed with the Spirit of promise. God has placed His own Holy Spirit within us as the down payment that He will complete that which He has begun. And He jealously desires that relationship with us and will allow no rivals. None. My friends, worldliness comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? All shapes and sizes. For some, it is a a mindless quest for entertainment. A pursuit of sensual gratification. To others, it is the importation into the church of God of, of worldly ideas and principles. Arrogance. Politics, personal kingdom building, strife, unforgiveness. There's a wide range of worldliness that creeps into the church. And God will have no part of any of it. None. He will not bless it. He requires an accounting of it at the day of judgment. He is deadly serious about the purity of his people. Recognize your predicament, James would say to us. The second part of that solution then, once we recognize the predicament, the extent of the problem, and my friends, we are all afflicted at one level or another with this problem. Once we recognize it, we see a a ray in verse 6, a ray of sunshine that just flashes in in the midst of all of this bad news. We are to receive God's grace, second part of that solution. Recognize your predicament. Secondly, receive God's grace, verse 6. 
but he gives a greater grace, he says. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a hard message. An enemy of God? Hostility with God? That is a terrifying prospect. To think that somehow you might be at war with the one who holds your breath in his hand. It's terrifying to think about. That God is jealous of us. And it's a jealousy that he will do something about. It's easy to get overwhelmed. It is really, really easy to get overwhelmed. To feel crushed, discouraged, burdened with our sin, helpless and hopeless. But our God is merciful. That's what James says to us here in verse 6. Our God is merciful. He's merciful. He's loving. He's generous with His grace. He pours it out upon those whom He loves. And we need grace to overcome sin, don't we? How much do we need? <laughs> A lot, right? A lot. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Superabounded. And that's what we need is a superabounding grace. You know, it's a dark, rainy day out there today, isn't it? Wouldn't it be really cool if the clouds just kind of peeled back for a moment and a big ray of sun just poured down through? That's what's happening right here. A big ray of sun is pouring down through verse 6 where he says he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. We can call on God. We can call out to God. We can beseech Him for His mercy to deliver us from our sin. And we know, we know that He will give. And not be stingy. Jesus died in our place. He rose again the third day. Sin has been conquered. The life of God is now within our very soul by faith. Lean on that truth. Come to that truth. Embrace that truth. Call out to God. Make that reality even more and more clear. Come back to God. You know, God is just like that father in Luke 15. You remember him? He had that son who wanted no part of him. Took off on his own. Finally figured out life outside the father's house is not all that good a deal. And he came home. 
You know what the coolest thing about that story is? The father was looking for the son. He was looking for him. And when he saw that son, he didn't just kind of wait around till he gets back. He hitched up his robe, tightened up his sandals, and he went for a run. He ran out to meet him, threw his arms around him, embraced him, and and brought him back into the family. He gives a greater grace, James says. All pretense of dignity out the window. You see that old man running out there to get his son. Listen, God desires us. He is jealous of us with a holy jealousy. And when we, when we will turn back to Him, He will run to us. He will throw His arms around us. He will welcome us home. He loves us. He loves us. Listen, God will supply all the grace you need to sever your tie to the world. If worldliness has has got a hold of you this morning, if, if your relationship with God has grown cold, if you feel distant and separate from Christ, God will pour out on you, He will pour out on me all the grace we need to come running back home. But if we won't, verse 6, we find ourselves in opposition to God. My friends, that is the wrong team to be on. God is opposed to the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. If we will but humble our hearts... He will pour the grace on us to welcome us back. And that takes us to the third, the third part of the solution. It is to rectify your situation. To rectify your situation. Change. I need to make change in my life. Response to this text. You need to make change. Submit, therefore, to God. Verse 7. God promises grace flows to the humble, right? Verse 6. How do I get it? How do I become humble? How do we humble our hearts? And what does a humble heart look like anyway? I mean, if that's the key to being on the receiving end of this superabundant grace, what does it look like and how do I do it? James has the answer. The beginning part of verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Look, try straight down to verse 10 as well. 
where he says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. These two expressions, to submit and to humble, form what commentators call an inclusio. Bookends. Bookends. The beginning and the end. They, they include everything that goes in between. They are the key to the text. God gives grace to the humble. How do I humble myself? Answer, submit to God. Submit to God. What does it mean to submit? It's an interesting word. It means to line up under. It's essentially a military term. It's to voluntarily line up under or to to place under one's authority. It's kind of like the sergeant who, who said, line up, fall in. And everybody scurries to get in line. Essentially what it means is accept your proper station in life. It's a good way to think about it. Submit, therefore, to God. Accept your proper station in life. By the way, this is a command. It's an imperative. Something we're expected to do. It's not an option. Jesus is both creator and Lord of his church, right? Therefore, he is calling those who are part of his church and part of the creation, and that is all of us, to line up under his authority. Submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Humble yourself in the presence of of the Lord, verse 10. It's the idea of a voluntary self-abasement. We sense our utter unworthiness in the presence of Christ, and we go lower. We line up. We say, what will you have for me, sir? Notice, by the way, it includes that really cool promise at the end of verse 10. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will do what? He will exalt you. He will exalt you. The picture here, by the way, is of somebody who's laying flat on their face in front of a king. And the king reaches down and and grabs their head and lifts it up out of the dust. And he turns and says to all, This is my friend. And he lifts him up and seats him down next to him. As we go down, we will be lifted where? Up. Christian life is so different than that of the world. You want to be first in God's kingdom? Be a servant to all. We go down to go up. How different from the world. The world says, in order to go up, you push everybody else down, right? We go down to go up. Repent, we could say. And return to God. Return to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Practically speaking, submission to Christ is as simple as this. It's a refusal to submit to the devil. James lays this out in such stark contrasts. To submit to Christ, to line up under the authority of Christ, is necessarily to reject the authority of the devil. It's to resist his authority. To turn from his purposes. In context, what are, what are the purposes of the devil here? What is, what is James laid out for us? It is the ongoing bickering within the church. It is the manifestation of pride among the people of God. By the way, the word devil, diablos, means the slanderer. The one who slanders. And you remember, Satan's original transgression was pride. I will be like the Most High, he said. He's not very original, by the way. He's not very original. What is Satan's chief aim among the people of God? It is to get them bickering with one another. It is to get them fighting among one another. It is to get them to show off their pride among each other. It is to slander them to one another. And when we participate in those kinds of activities, we are submitting to the lordship of the devil. Remember chapter 3 and verse 6, where James says, the tongue is a fire that is set on fire itself by hell. By hell. We must not just resist, though. That's not enough. We must draw near to God, James says. And he promises us if we'll do that, then God will draw near to us. Worldliness has separated James's readers from God. They're no longer living as his friend, but they're living as his enemy. And James is now saying to them, their, their intimate relationship with God has become distant, has become sterile, it's become broken. They're finding themselves on the wrong side. There's no passion in their lives, at least not for the things of God. They're kind of like that charcoal briquette. You've heard it, right? You light that fire and you, you mound up all those briquettes and they're glowing really hot. Orange. You reach in there with a pair of tongs and you pull one out and set it off to the side, right? Doesn't take very long before the fire is not burning very hot in that thing anymore. How's your walk with Christ this morning? Time for a little self-evaluation. How is your walk with Christ? If we were to put a spiritual thermometer in your mouth, what would it read? Is there any passion? Any heat? Any desire? Or have the things of the world begun to captivate your soul? You think more about the world and its problems than you do about Christ and his promises. Is there enough evidence 
to convict you as being a Christian. James says, verse 6, He gives a greater grace, my friends. Come running home. Leave the pods to the pigs and come running home. Come on back. God's arms are open wide for you. Draw near to God, verse 8, and He will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. But when you come back, when you come back, you you have to be willing to take a bath. When you come back, you have to be willing to take a bath. You have to be willing to be cleaned up. You don't have to be cleaned up to come back, but when you come, it's bath time. It's bath time. James says we're to restore our purity. Restore our purity. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, verse 8. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Hey, when we get out there in the world and we start messing around, we pick up grime. We get kind of dirty. We pick up the crud of the world. And and like the priest of old, if we're to enter into the presence of God, we need a bath. Now, Christ has... He has cleansed us positionally by his sacrifice on the cross. We're not talking about our redemptive, our redemption. We're, we're talking about our relationship, our ongoing relationship with him. We need to wash off the crud from our feet. You know, we can't just dabble in the world and think we're not going to get dirty and just ignore it. James used some strong words here. Verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is those with a divided affection, double-minded people. The hands are are a symbol for our ethical conduct. The heart is our inner life, our inner spiritual life. He's saying, you got to get cleaned up. You need a bath. You've picked up some crud. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. We need a bath. Listen, God welcomes us back into intimacy of fellowship with him. His arms are wide open to us if we'll but come. But when we come, we can't bring along our two friends debauched and defiled. You know what I'm saying? There's no room for them at the table. You got to leave them behind. Leave money outside. Let the pigs eat the pots. You come back to God. Finally, James goes on to say, we need to reject the world's frivolity. We need to reject the world's frivolity. This is the path back. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Can you imagine? 
should put that out front on the sign. Today's message, be miserable, mourn, and weep. All are welcome. I mean, that sounds really foreign to our ears, doesn't it? Really foreign. Again, James is, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. This is the language of the prophets speaking to the people of Israel over and over again. He's calling on them to recognize their wretchedness and to mourn over their sin. Joel chapter 2 verse 12 Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, writing to the church that has lost its consciousness of sin. He said, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. You have not mourned for your sin. You're not taking it seriously enough. You're blowing it off. It's not that big a deal, right? I mean, after all, I'm covered in the blood of Christ. I'm saved. I'm eternally secure. doesn't matter how I live. James says, do you not know? Do you not know? This is hard language. There's really, really hard language, and it's especially hard language for a society like ours that thrives on frivolity and, and self-assuredness. We're so confident. We got our theology all squared away, right? Christ will take me because I got my Bible knowledge. I got my theology. My life is a shambles. My friends, we're living in the backwash of easy believism, shallow repentance. James confronts these things. I mean, we honestly, let's just be, let's be real with each other. We find it hard to identify with the tax collector who stood there beating his breast, don't we? Beating his breast and, and standing a distance away, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Just pray this prayer. That's all you have to do. Just make this profession of faith. That's all you have to do. Do you not know? Do you not know? There is only one path. The gate is narrow. The way is narrow. And few find it. Now, James is not advocating that we all walk around looking like we've been baptized in pickle juice. Okay? Let's put the long faces on. You know, let your hair go unkempt. Just throw some dust up in the air. Let it fall on you. Right? He's not, he's not advocating that. All that external stuff. What he's saying is, brethren, beloved Brethren, we need to take stuff seriously. We need to take the claim of Christ on our life seriously.
to flirt with the world, to be the friend of the world, is a very, very serious breach. It's not a small matter. And the problem for us is in the society in which we live, we as a church, an evangelical church, have made so many compromises with our culture and our society that we're not sure anymore. And this kind of message just sounds crazy. It is crazy. Unless. Unless Christ is true. Heaven is real. And hell is every bit as frightful as has been portrayed. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul, right? I think a worldliness like weeds. Work with me on this. My side yard, after it rains, I get these little dinky weeds that come up. They're really annoying. But they're small. So I overlook them. Because it's work to go out and pull up weeds. Then the sun comes out. You know, It's going to happen right after this week. I'm just telling you, it's going to happen. Right? All this rain, then the sun's going to come out, and my side yard is going to have all these dinky little weeds in it. And I can ignore it. Frequently do. And I look back out the window a few weeks later, and, I, and it looks like Jack and the Beanstalk. I mean, these things are huge. Where did that come from? So that's how worldliness is. It's just like little weeds at first. That's what it seems like. But latent within it is, is all the, the devilish, hellish energy to become this gigantic weed, this toxic, noxious weed that will consume you and the church. So I got some four-month roundup. And I got the good stuff. You know, you pour it on the ground and it becomes like Three Mile Island. No, nothing will grow there for a good long time. I sprayed them. See, that's what we have to do with worldliness. We've got to get after it. Can't wait until it becomes this four-foot weed and go, where did that come from? We've got to get after it while it's still little. Get that roundup out there and spray it down. Pull them out. That's what James would have for us here. Don't let this worldliness get a hold of your heart. Turn away from it. God wants you. His arms are wide open to you. His grace is pouring out on you. Come home. Sinner, come home. May God grant us the grace, even today, come home. Let's pray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love.
Oh, Lord, how that, how that lyric expresses the reality of my life. And I know the life of my brothers and sisters here as well. Our Father, it is so easy to lose the path, to lose the way. So easy to allow the things of this world, the things that, that shine and glitter, to crowd out your still small voice. To be caught up in the here and the now. Whether it be the pursuit of the world's treasures or, or the pursuit of the world's approval. Whatever it be. Oh God. Forgive us. Deliver us. Flood us with your grace, O oh Lord, for where sin increased, grace superabounded. O oh God, we pray for your grace even now. you might rescue us. Oh Lord, for that one person today sitting out here right now taking spiritual inventory and realizing they have drifted very far from shore. God, may today be their day. Will you break through to their heart Will you rekindle the flame? Will you pull the coal back into the warmth of the fire? Where they might again burn hot for Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we close out the service with At the Cross.